Welcome to everybody. My name is Jeff Gedman. Uh, I have an affiliation with the Atlantic Council and a group called Blue Star Strategies, but I think I'm mostly here because I'm a former president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. It's great to see a former director of Voice of America, David Enser, here. Welcome, David. And, and a number of distinguished people around the table. Um, <clears throat> we've designed this, this program, this roundtable, as a conversation. I'm going to introduce uh, our two speakers ask them to kick us off with some introductory remarks. We'll have a bit of a conversation here at the top of the table. But we've you in because there's considerable expertise and, and talent in the room, which is, uh, makes this a special joy. Uh, we are live streaming, so to those joining us uh, via the live streaming, uh, welcome. We're delighted you're here, and sorry you can't be here in person. Uh, before I introduce our two uh, kickoff speakers, and offer them the floor. Uh, another distinguished colleague in the room, uh, my former general counsel from RFERL, John Lindbergh, just stuck something in my hand right before I came up here. Anybody who knows John knows that he always has a folder or a book, uh, or folders and books. And he slipped me the note that said, see page 65. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. It's all of about four lines. It's from a little book called On Tyranny. 20 Lessons from the 20th Century by Timothy Snyder, whom you all know as a distinguished writer, essayist, and historian. Uh, and this is Lesson 10, Believe in Truth. Quote, to abandon facts is to abandon freedom. If nothing is true, then no one can criticize power, because there is no basis upon which to do so. If nothing is true, then all is spectacle. The biggest wallet pays for the most blinding lights, close quote. So thank you, Timothy Snyder, and thank you, John Lindbergh, for that. Uh, we have two people uh, who not only believe in that, uh, but believe in the power of ideas and American public diplomacy and U.S international media, or U.S. international broadcasting, as it's uh, sometimes called. Uh, as I was thinking about the topic at hand this morning, um, the more I think about it, the more difficult I find it, because in a sense, these are my words as I boil it down, what we're trying to do is pretty straightforward. It just happens to be fiendishly difficult. Uh, in my words, what we're trying to do when we talk about the aims of U.S. public diplomacy and the mission of U.S. international uh, media, uh, we're trying to explain ourselves as Americans. We're trying to explain to the world our policies, our foreign policies. Well, we're trying to make common cause with those around the world who share our values, our democratic, our liberal democratic values. And we're trying to block and contain and defeat those who don't. So I think as a general proposition, it's kind of straightforward. But when you drill just a half inch deeper on how we do it and what's productive and what's counterproductive and how do we understand our audiences and how do we divide labor and how do we gear up to do these things organizationally, it's not so simple. And I think we have a lot of experience around the room to help us think about these things in, I think, I hope, a more intelligent, more productive fashion. 
the two people you're going to hear from to kick off today. To my left is Martha Bayless. Martha teaches at Boston College. Uh, she has written extensively uh, for a number of uh, publications and published books on subjects about American culture, including music and film. She's a former film critic for the Wall Street, from the Wall Street Journal, for the Wall Street Journal. She's written extensively about public diplomacy. Her most recent book, Yale University Press, Through a Screen Darkly, Popular Culture, Public Diplomacy, and America's Image Abroad. Uh, and uh, she writes, among other things, a regular column for the American interest. So welcome, Martha, and I'm going to give you the floor in just one moment. But then I want to introduce to my right um, a senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute, uh, Eric Brown, who writes principally on defense and security and terrorism issues, uh, is well acquainted professionally and also through personal ties to East Asia, the greater Middle East, including North Africa, <clears throat> Turkey, uh, apart from his juggling of speaking and writing and traveling and consulting, uh, he has been very busy this week with Turkey and developments there, as you can well imagine. <clears throat> and Eric has, I think in a number of ways, complementary, but also contrasting views to what Martha might say, so that we have a little bit, I hope, a little bit of constructive tension in the conversation. But I'm going to start with you, Martha, and ask you uh, in five, six, seven, eight minutes, could you just unpack a little bit for us where you think we are and what you think the principal problems are, or, or since we make mistakes, all of us, and in this field, mistakes to be avoided. But just get us going. In your view, what are the top line issues we need to be talking about today? And thank you. Um, thank you, Jeff. Um, I hope I'm audible. Am I audible? Okay. If anybody shakes their head, then I know they're lying. Um, well, I guess I, I'll try to be cogent and not uh, wander too much. It's, it's, it's such a hairy, large ball of a topic that it's very hard to focus it sometimes. Um, but this is what I suggest as a focus. First, I would like to look at a little bit at what we're up against. Um, in terms of three different kinds of uh, information war that are currently being waged against the United States and against what the United States stands for more generally, not just in terms of our national interests, but also uh, our system of government and what, what it means around the world. And then I want to look at what we're up against at home in terms of you know, we've been trying to revive our efforts to communicate with the world ever since 9-11. And most of these efforts have been kind of stillborn and highly contested and uh, have, you know, not succeeded very well. And I'm, I would like to just say a few things about just a very quick sense of why that is. Because I think if we don't address our own difficulties, sort of big picture difficulties in terms of how we have a, some kind of a an official American way of communicating with the world, words that don't even resonate very well in some parts of our of our body politic, um, then we aren't going to be able to push back against these three kinds of very adversarial information offensives. So let me start with the three adversaries. 
they overlap in some ways, um, and but they're very different in others. And in this group, I probably don't need to say a whole lot about all, any of them because I think probably the people in this room have a good sense of it and could add a lot to what I'm going to sketch. But I'll just say, first of all, the, the, the Russia, China, and violent jihadism, I'll just use ISIS as a stand-in for that. Of course, there are other groups, and there will be other groups uh, other than ISIS. Um, their media strategies, their information strategies are much talked about in this town. It's not unknown to any of you, I suspect. I would just make a couple of generalizations about the differences between them. In the case of Russia, I think it's mostly um, an attempt to sort of go into the fissures and cracks in uh, struggling democracies, which is today all democracies are struggling, uh, to find the fissures, the cracks, the, the weak spots, the vulnerabilities, and to move in and do everything they can to uh, exacerbate those problems, to further divide, to open wider cracks, wider fissures, uh, and also to spread there's a, you know, the, the current the phrase that's been used for a couple of years now, it's not a war of information, it's a war on information because of the high degree of old-fashioned KGB-style disinformation, um, confusing narratives sent out simultaneously, the whole attempt to sort of um, befoul the communication air. That quote is a great uh, quote of sort of, you know, if, if nobody knows... If there's no such thing as truth, then, then the person with the loudest voice is the person who is right. And that's kind of the philosophy. It's not a very aspirational enterprise at this point. Um, I think in the early days when RT, the Russia Today, the international uh, multilingual Russian television channel was being set up, there was an aspirational aspect to it, that it was going to tell Russia's story. It was going to present a better image of Russia in the world. I have this feeling from all the sources I talk to that this has gone by the board, and now it's more kind of the, the effort to be a spoiler in, in uh, the various language markets that RT goes into, and of course Sputnik Radio has a similar mission. That's, the media part is just one part of it. There's a whole bunch of other things going on, obviously. So that's the, it's aspirational at home. Russia, Russian propaganda at home is, of course, very different. The inward-facing propaganda of Russia is, is quite aspirational. It's all about the greatness of Russia, the greatness of Mr. Putin, and, you know, sort of, that's a very different kind of narrative, if you will, than to what is going outside. In the case of China, <clears throat> China is, I'd say, has an aspirational aspect to everything they do, both domestically and overseas, and there's more consistency in China between the messages that are going out and the messages that are at home. And it's a kind of attempt still, despite everything, to burnish the civilizational uh, greatness of China, uh, the superiority of the Chinese form of government, uh, as opposed to the weaknesses of democracy. Um, and it's, and you know, give or take the Chinese economic arrangements and China's know-how in, in administration and in governing and so forth. So it's the China model, going back to the old days of the Singapore model and the China model, and it's also um, the greatness of China, Chinese civilization. And But underneath that, that sort of shiny surface, it's also a very, very systematic attempt to suppress criticism of China in as many places as possible, in as many ways as possible. And these are massive undertakings. 
I know that the National Endowment for Democracy has only recently, has recently commissioned a study of Chinese and Russian attempts to influence opinion in Peru, Argentina, Slovakia, and Poland. And you could have picked any four other countries around the world. This is a very active effort on the part of both Russia and China in countries and places around the world where you wouldn't even think they would be present. It's massive. They're devoting massive resources to it. That's two of our adversaries. The other is, of course, a mostly recruitment and uh, support e effort, mostly on social media by ISIS and other violent jihadist organizations, um, which promises to young people, sometimes, oftentimes, my understanding is young people who, are, who feel sort of trapped in very rather stifling circumstances of family, of community, of you know, immigrant communities in the West or their own communities. They don't have much sense of a future. They don't have much excitement in their lives. This is a great package that ISIS, until recently, I think they're still trying to peddle it, offered you know, thrills, violence, excitement, travel, danger, even, even sex because you know, there's, a, there's a kind of legitimated sexual life that you can enjoy if you join ISIS, which is blessed and is not sinful. It's a whole package, and they borrow a lot of techniques from American entertainment, in particular video games, to highlight the, the excitement of the violence and the excitement of the warfare. But it's also aspirational in this very weird sort of adolescent way, that you're going you're to have all this excitement and all this fun and all these thrills, and you're going to save your soul too. I don't think we figured out how to push back against that, I can say. It's, except, of course, by destroying the political claims of ISIS to actually having a state, which we're obviously trying to do. So China and Russia, huge amount of resources. They have studied their own propaganda traditions, which they draw upon. They've also studied ours. Um, the Chinese are expert on the progressive era thinkers like a Walter Lippmann and you know American communications theory. They're experts on all of our communications theory, all of our uh, ideas of how to manage the electorate and so forth. They're experts on that. <clears throat> Um, so that's what I have to say about the differences. Obviously, a lot more could be said, and I'm sure people here will correct me about what I got wrong. Um, so why are we so ill-prepared to deal with these three adversaries? Number one, they're three adversaries, and that's confusing. Um, number two, um, and I will just very briefly tell you, I think the, one of the major obstacles, and the one that I will emphasize here today, is our own polarization, our cultural and political polarization, makes it extremely hard for us to agree about what it is we are trying to say and how it is that we should say it. And you can date this back to, uh, to the late 60s, to Vietnam. The Vietnam War kind of made it very, very difficult for the old USIA to function because there was a mass exodus from USIA of writers, journalists, academics, artists, cultural figures of all kind, who had been the, 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 the main things that USIA were, these were the people that USIA were sending on speaker tours, these were the main people that USIA were drawing upon for all their programs about America in many, many countries around the world. There was a kind of mass, mass exodus from doing anything for the evil US government that was fighting the war in Vietnam. And then in the 80s under Reagan, USIA under Charles Wick was kind of re-engineered to be very focused on an anti-Soviet 
pro-American ideological message. Can't say that that was a bad idea, <clears throat> but I think on a couple of famous occasions they went a little too far <laughs> and in incurred more ire on the part of the kind of alienated, uh, more blue state side of, of, the, of the society. We're still living with that legacy. And, we're, and, after nine, and after the end of the Cold War, a lot of these efforts were, were scaled way back. As you all know, USIA was ended in 1999. The broadcasting, the cultural exchanges, all the other parts of public diplomacy were cut in aggregate by about one-third uh, after the end of the Cold War. And in came a lot of people in America thought that the private sector could fill the vacuum and that new technology, new communications technology would fill the vacuum. I think we're now at the end of that particular phase. We're beginning to see that that vacuum has not been adequately filled and, and I would argue been perversely filled in some ways. Um, so what do, we, what do we do? We're really at a kind of, I think, at a crossroads, lacking the will as a, as a polity to do anything about this because we cannot agree about how it should be done and what should be done. Um, and I have more to say, but I think I'll leave it at that for now. Martha, thank you for that um, uh, fine start. I want to ask one question. Why is it that, uh, broadly speaking, um, since we all care about history, I think Al Capone uh, once said you can get more in this world with a smile and a gun than you can with a smile alone. But of course also vice versa. And if our adversaries take this enterprise of influence and information so seriously and devote so much in terms of resources, why is it that the United States as a superpower, a global power, tends to short shrift these things in terms of resources, but also in terms of political attention, also in terms of clout within the United States government generally. If you agree that's so, well, why is that? Why do we miss that beat? Um, <laughs> well, I think, I think it's because we, um, on both sides of the political divide, we don't trust, this is a deeply seated American distrust of anything that looks like government propaganda. You know, um, we've, we've only, we only rank, ratcheted it up, uh, because of the Second World War, and then we were getting ready to get rid of it, and we ratcheted it up again for the Cold War. We, we thought we could just get rid of it again. Americans don't like to think that we need to do propaganda, and we, you know, we don't like to think that we, that our government uh, has any role in in sort of spreading the message around the world, and when we when we decide it does have a role, we can't agree about what that role should be. Okay. So, so the second thing uh, that you touched upon, but if I could just tease out for a moment, so to that member of the American Congress who says resources are finite, we have to make very hard choices, we have to prioritize, and, and good heavens, we live now in this globally interdependent economy, and people between smartphones and internet and cable television, they, they, they face an avalanche of information. There's no shortage of information, including from U.S. outlets. Mm -hmm. and, and you suggested that that's not right or not enough. Why is that? Well, most of what people access from American media is entertainment. And, and our news, our commercial news media, uh, 
for uh, very understandable reasons, tend to go where into lucrative markets and don't really broadcast in other languages. So that's one answer right there. Our commercial media uh, don't broadcast, don't, don't speak to people in their own languages, and they're not interested in non-lucrative markets. But they, they spread into those markets in other ways. The entertainment does much more than the news. Um, and as for the Internet, well, the Internet has linked up a lot of people in a lot of different ways, obviously, but authoritarian regimes are learning how to to uh, control the Internet. China built their Internet to be controlled, so they're doing a very good job of it. Uh, people finding ways around it, but it's getting harder and harder. So, and, and in a lot of places in the world where attitudes toward America are very important, people don't use the Internet. They don't have access to it. I know that's changing, but there are still places where it, it's just not the case. And a lot of internet material about the United States is in English. Other people in the world do not speak English. A whole bunches of them don't speak English. <laughs> and that's something that's very hard for Americans to quite understand. I'd say those are just a couple of thoughts. Right. Uh, and I will just add as a, an American who spent 12 years of his professional life in Europe, in countries where they do speak English, Germany and Britain and the Czech Republic, they still have native languages, which are not called English, mm. with which they feel particularly at home and comfortable and, and kind of in sync and so forth. So Martha, thank you. Eric, over to you. Um, I'm going to be slightly unfair. Please feel free to give whatever introductory remar remarks you've prepared. So not unfair. You still have that time. But, but um, I'm inviting you to respond to anything you heard Martha say. And then if you would also, since you are, are keenly interested in this, this three-front information war we're talking about today with Russia, China, and, and radical jihadists, um, talk to us also a little bit about the intersection b between hard security and political stability and what happens is this realm too, because they both have to fit together somehow. Yeah. Certainly the case in the greater Middle East, for example. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, there's so much richness in Martha's <laughs> remarks that I'm, um, uh, I'm going to allow all of you to respond as, instead of taking on that responsibility. Um, and certainly with all this talent here at this table, I want to keep my remarks short because there's a lot to learn from all of your experiences. Um, uh, and there's a really important discussion that we've attempted to have, I think, since 9-11 about the kinds of organizational um, uh, capabilities various capabilities and techniques that we as a country needed in order to make our case for civic republicanism uh, internationally. Um, and that discussion has been, as Martha said, uh, very much stillborn. Uh, uh, there have been reams and reams of reports written by Washington think tanks and by uh, the U.S. government uh, since 9-11 um, of varying quality. Uh, some of it has been quite good. Um, the good stuff has tended to be regurgitated and recycled um, over time, and yet we've failed to see a lot of action, both at the U.S. governmental level and at the non-governmental level, to really make a serious investment in developing these kinds of capabilities and in fielding the kinds of professional people who have a, a, uh, the resources but also the political instincts and the communications capabilities to be able to further the kinds of arguments that we want to make. Um, and that's true not just in the Asia Pacific and in the Middle East but also in Europe and in Latin America. So it would be useful to have that discussion but as I 
discussed with Jeff and, and Martha last night, I mean, a lot of that discussion is sort of a moot point because um, certainly since 9-11, uh, there's been so much incoherence and um, internal inconsistency in our own government and in our own national policy um, uh, that uh, it's very difficult to come to an idea of what, in fact, we want to achieve globally. Um, you can't have propaganda or you can't have a proper messaging uh, operation without a sense of a political message to propagate. And we haven't come to an understanding of what that message in the 21st century, I think, should look like. In some ways, I think our mental and our strategic torpor uh, has even invited aggression. Um, as Jeff indicated, um, the sort of post-1991 geopolitical settlement uh, is now coming under pressure, uh, I think, on four different fronts, possibly five, uh, both by a revisionist Putin in Russia, um, uh, the Chinese Communist Party um, uh, in the Asia-Pacific and in other places. And then, of course, in the Middle East, we've seen a actual breakdown in the state-based order, which is now being taken advantage of by a whole lot of new neo-imperial projects. Uh, ISIS is one uh, contender, uh, which is attempting to remake that broken political order in the Middle East on the basis of a particular notion of Islamism. Uh, but it's not the only contender uh, uh, for supremacy uh, uh, in the Middle East. Iran is also deeply engaged in exploiting the breakdown of political order in the region. Uh, we haven't, I don't think, fully... <laughs> comprehended or fully grasped all of these problems in part because, well, look at what, look at some of the similarities between what Putin is doing and what the Chinese Communist Party are doing in terms of their information strategy. Um, they're taking advantage of the chaos and the instability and fragility that is spreading in the greater Middle East and other places and making the case domestically that authoritarianism um, uh, is certainly to pre be preferred to chaos and to disorder. And there they have a point. Um, uh, I think most people will hang on to some form of authoritarian rule uh, if faced with an alternative of chaos and certainly the kind that's being propagated by, among others, Islamic State. Um, but the other thing that we're seeing Putin and the Chinese Communist Party do very well is they are very good at ha helping us to talk amongst ourselves about things which we want to talk about amongst ourselves, um, uh, while at the same time among themselves they're talking about their core interests. The Communist Party in China is talking about how to preserve its monopoly on power in China. Uh, it's talking about how to aggrandize itself strategically in the East China Sea and in the South China Sea. Russia is doing, Putin is doing the same. Uh, he's talking about his core interests of maintaining his particular oligarchy and kleptocracy at home. Uh, while at the same time, uh, getting us to talk amongst ourselves and anguishing uh, here in Washington over whether a rising China is going to be a friend or foe. Um, one of the best defenses, I think, against this um, would be to assert what we ourselves as Americans think should be our own strategic goals or our own strategic core interests. Um, that level of clarity has completely elided us, I think, particularly since the end of the Cold War. And it's important to recall, because while we can learn a lot from looking at the history of USIA and the various active measures that the U.S. undertook in order to compete with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, 
None of that would have been possible without the strategic analysis that was done in 1947 by George Cannon and others, in which he defined not just an information threat that we were facing in the form of the Soviet Union, but principally the political threat that we were facing in the form of this implacable foe known as communist tyranny. And because they defined it as a political threat, they were then able to begin to have a conversation about what kinds of information strategies and indeed also military strategies and other things that we needed to do in order to contain that threat and roll it back. That core analysis has been fundamentally lacking. We failed to come to a common consensus, and I doubt that we will come to a consensus on some of the social and cultural debates that have been rolling in this country anytime soon, but it's an imperative of national security to at least come to a consensus of what we want to achieve in the 21st century geostrategically and politically. Um, one of the chief issues, though, that we're facing is, is that the current political challenge that we're seeing around the world is not the same challenge that we had in the 20th century with the struggle against Soviet communism. Then it was a struggle between, as we came to understand it, democracy and Soviet tyranny. Now, the struggle, as we say, is more complex, it's more heterogeneous. It's not simply a struggle between democracy and authoritarianism, but also a struggle between um, uh, uh, the state and the lack of the state. Um, uh, it is, in fact, the failure of the civic republicanism, which was supposed to sort of nourish the modern state-based order, and the fact that th that civic republicanism is not being defended right now, which has led to a sort of vacuum in a lot of states around the world, which different forms of authoritarianism have attempted to fill. And now, as that state-based order begins to crumble, we see all of these various new kinds of neo-imperial projects taking advantage of the vacuum, both the ideological and the strategic vacuum that has been created by this. Think about it. We would not have an issue with Russian uh, revanchism today if the state-based order in the eastern part of Europe uh, was stronger, if there wasn't an issue of corruption in the Ukraine, if, in fact, Ukraine was a coherent polity. Instead, Russia had, has understood that Whatever sort of hocus-pocus and wizardry it does with its information strategy, it understands that it can advance where it can find a chink in the governing armor of a country like the Ukraine. And it's certainly looking and doing an assessment of what it can do in the Baltics at the same time. The same issue that we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the same issue in the Middle East right now with Islamic State uh, and, and Iran. Um, they are advancing in areas where they can find faction, where they can exploit faction, and where they can then build on it. They're not creating order out of this, but they're sowing disorder, and they're reaping advantages of this as authoritarian projects. It's very interesting that PRC, despite its claims to eventually come to dominate the Asia-Pacific has not yet had much success in the Asia-Pacific, in part because when it looks out to the, to the west, I mean, or rather to the sea, it's confronted with commercial democracies which are far in advance of what it is domestically. Nonetheless, what we have seen in just recent years has been PRC has, take, has found much greater political and strategic latitude to aggrandize itself on land. And so we're seeing with OBOR and the Silk Road an effort to expand and to 
if you will, find a more secure footing for the Communist Party to preserve its monopoly on power in the 21st century on the, you know, on the continent rather than at sea. And that's in fact, I mean, that I think is the analysis which is in part shaping their expansion into Pakistan and Kazakhstan and deeper into the Middle East. Anyway, in light of this, in light of this hybrid uh, offense that we're seeing, um, uh, uh, being waged by a whole variety of adversaries of the state-based order, we need to come up with a hybrid defense. Um, as I mentioned, um, they're advancing when they find chinks in the governing armor of different countries. Uh, they're advancing where they identify fragility and find it. Um, we need to think about how to build up the resilience of these societies to be able to withstand these pressures. Now, we know something about fragility. It's normally caused because of failure of politics at the top, because of failure of a broken governing compact, and because of failures of brokening social covenants. Um, I think to fix what ails the Republican-based order or the state-based order around the world, we need to come up with Republican-based solutions to advance um, uh, and to show that there are Republican-based solutions which can help societies deal with the security problems that they face. Those consist of <clears throat> rule of law, um, uh, religious freedom, uh, the advance of actual toleration and understanding of civic pluralism, uh, and, and engaged in active citizenry. Um, if those aren't the focus of our information operations and our actual political campaigns, then we're going to find ourselves in a sort of free-for-all where we're fighting disinformation and not actually advancing our own strategic goals in the fashion in which we should be doing. Um, outside of that, we do need to go back to a discussion about what are our core interests in the 21st century. Um, keeping a Europe whole and free should be, um, if unless we have uh, a U.S. policy that asserts that that is a core interest of the United States, then it's very difficult to see how it is we'll build up the necessary information capabilities and techniques to be able to conduct this struggle effectively. Um, the other thing, too, is we have to be, a, I think, a lot better at, since we are in this sort of hybrid struggle, um, uh, we have to be a lot better at shifting the burden back onto our adversaries. Um, the, the, the truth is, is that it's a heck of a lot easier for them to sow chaos and to create order than it is to nurture viable, healthy republics and viable, healthy states. Um, we can't contest um, Russia, PRC, ISIS, and Iran on all the fronts in which they're attempting to sow disorder. So we need to be, I think, very strategic in sort of picking the places where we're going to try to contest them and to do it effectively. But on the flip side of things, the whole, the whole task of turning the struggle back, putting the burden back onto the aggressor, partly comes with defining who they are in the first place. It's not China which is aggressing, uh, which is seeking to undo the peace. Uh, China, as we know, has benefited enormously from the peace in Asia. Right now, it's the political vulnerabilities of the communist government in China and its efforts to preserve its monopoly on power, which is threatening the liberal peace in the Asia-Pacific. If we don't understand
understand the differences between China proper and the ruling Communist Party, then we failed to miss our mark and we're not going to be able to design the proper kinds of communications and uh, um, uh, political strategies that we actually require to deal with this, with, with that particular foe. The same issue is, is what we, is what we're dealing with in the Middle East. Um, you know, ISIS represents an effort to reject uh, the modern politics of, of peace, uh, of, of stability, and of order. And in its place, it, it poses a new politics based upon empire, based upon the pursuit of authenticity, and based upon honor. These are attractive principles for people who have no governing structure, no security um, uh, at all uh, left. Um, uh, I don't think we're going to be able to compete directly with those principles for people who are who are left vulnerable and for for whom for people who have who find it difficult or impossible to construct a viable healthy republican future for themselves. And so a lot of our emphasis I think needs to be focusing on building the alternatives and the actual infrastructure to support those alternatives rather than simply focusing on developing a counter message. Um, I'll leave it at that. Eric, thank you. There's a lot in that and, and we're going to unpack a lot of that in the discussion round, but I have two questions for you in the meantime. First, um, is it then so, because I think you suggested this, that, that it's exceptionally difficult to have effective information and public diplomacy policies if they're not first embedded in a clear strategic vision and a coherent set of American foreign policies and priorities? Yeah, we at least need a core, a set of what our strategic core interests are in the world and what we're willing to defend. Uh, and uh, and it's from that that we can then develop the information strategies and capabilities that we require. Okay. Yeah. My second question is: We're we're now forty minutes into the conversation, and you, you might think that this is some sort of think tank discussion in a place like the Hudson Institute, but but none of this happens in a vacuum. Right obviously. And if I, those who are watching live streaming don't know this, but those in the room, if we look across the street there, there's a hotel. I can't make it out. It says Marriott. No, Hilton. No, it says Trump uh, across the street from the Hudson Institute. S say at least a word or two, since we're in the course of this conversation going to figure everything out beautifully, elegantly. We still need a government that is interested, engaged, and receptive to some of the things we're talking about. It's early days, but you can offer us, uh, offer us a, a, some speculation about how a Trump foreign policy is likely to evolve in these areas and what U.S. public diplomacy and U.S. international media might well look like in one or two years. Well, I mean, it's very clear I mean, President Trump has made clear that he wants to see the destruction of Islamic State. Uh, and that has involved uh, uh, increasing military deployments to Iraq and to Syria. Um, what has still been lacking has been the problem that bedeviled the Obama administration as well, and that is, what do you do to fill the vacuum after Islamic State is defeated? Um, He's going to have to deal with that, and his new administration is going to have to deal with that question of how do you then build stability? How do you then build governing institutions um, uh, which can 
which can fill the vacuum. And so I, I tend to think that uh, out of necessity, uh, this administration is going to have uh, to begin to ask questions about um, uh, about how do you build political stability and how do you how do you then also begin to win the ideological struggle in addition to that. Um, unfortunately, you know, it, it, it is we've struggled with this because on one level it it is it's one thing to put ordinance on a target it's another thing uh, but that but that act as tactically brilliant as it might be does not produce the strategic outcomes that we're looking to produce and it doesn't yield lasting strategic outcomes that we're trying to achieve without a political and ideological strategy to complement it and I mean, we're just, I think, shooting in the dark without it. Uh, Eric, thank you. Martha, before I open it up, I wanted to go back to you, uh, if I may, on one thing. Uh, we've talked about uh, the strategic conditions changing. We're past the tranquility, if, if we may put it that way, of uh, the first decade after communism, 1990s, we're, we're post-9-11. Uh, we also, well, you spoke in the, the top of your remarks about how the adversaries have become exceptionally good at identifying fissures and cracks and filling them and widening them. And uh, I think from what you said and what Eric said, I'm going to voice my own opinion, it sure seems to me that they have cracks to work with these days because free enterprise and democracy in a number of countries, arguably even here, not exactly at the top of our game. Okay, in different ways. <clears throat> Having said that, and this uh, I'm f borrowing from a conversation you and I had recently. having said that, we always had the cracks, right? And if you just pick a decade, pick in the United States alone as a leading democracy, the early 1960s to the early 1970s, we had strife and violence over desegregation, <clears throat> we had Vietnam, we yeah. had Watergate. We had the assassination of Martin Luther King. We had the assassination of an American president. We had oil shocks. We had hyperinflation. I mean, lots of cracks then. But we did it. We got through it. We got on the other side of it. Um, is it different now? Is it harder now? If it is different or harder, why? One answer I'd give to that is in the 70s, um, one of the most successful things that USIA did, and this was not obviously in a crisis situation, this was not going on in, the, in, in a place like Syria, it was going on in Europe, was the bicentennial. I know that sounds sort of corny, but the US bicentennial uh, was done extremely well by USIA in, throughout Europe and in, in the rest of the world because there were a lot of people working for USIA at the time who could remember what it meant in the earlier days of the Cold War, and some of them could remember in World War II, what it meant to defend sort of the basic uh, fundamental liberties that the America is supposed to stand for. And they knew how to articulate that in other countries, in other societies. They knew how to um, show people what that meant in various ways. And so they drew upon that even during the divided uh, 70s. Uh, they were able to draw on that. And they put together some wonderful exhibitions and events that by all accounts were hugely successful and actually changed a lot of Europeans to sort of, you know, wow, America really does have something to offer, you know, at a time when people were extremely alienated from the United States, elites in particular, over Vietnam and such. 
But I think one thing that's going on now is that we've lost, one, the way I put it is, every, you know, what we now keep doing every time we decide there's a crisis in this is that we reinvent the wheel, only we tend to make it square because we don't try to remember, we don't look back at what actually was well done in the past that might actually still apply. We're so preoccupied with changes in technology, with globalization, with everything that's different now, that we don't, in my opinion, pay enough attention to what hasn't changed. And some of the things that haven't changed are basic aspects of, of communication, credibility, how do you talk to people in, in, in foreign countries? The role of foreign nationals in all of these efforts is almost never talked about in, in Washington. None of this stuff could happen without the cooperation of amazing people from other countries who work for these U.S. Uh, efforts and whose good ideas tend to be the main good ideas in, in what happens in the field. It comes from a huge number of foreign nationals who work for us, who can sit down and tell you what's, what's good about the United States at the drop of a hat. They have a very good grasp of it, partly because some of them live in societies where they don't have those basic political liberties. We've seemed to have forgotten what it's, what it's all about because we don't, it sounds to the left, it sounds like, you know, propaganda, right-wing propaganda, and, you know, to the right, it doesn't sound hard-edged enough. It sounds, you know, kind of soft-powery when hard power is really the point. We just, we just are all over the place in terms of agreeing on just sort of basic things. And there's also a generational difference because we now have a cohort of very well-educated young Americans who can't remember anything about the Cold War, uh, who think that the main enemies of liberty are sexism and racism and homophobia because they've been very carefully educated to believe that. And so when they look at other societies where there really are no basic liberties, they tend to look at it through that prism. And that's a real, that's a real liability when it comes to communicating in other societies. So I've given you a whole heap of things. But there's some, I mean, I don't mean to be so depressing, because I think that we do have possibilities and we do have lots of strengths that we're not drawing on. <clears throat> Martha, thank you. Um, I also appreciate greatly that you mentioned uh, this room knows, but too many Americans don't know this national treasure that we have, which is international, uh, and that is the men and women who work for RFRL, VOA, Radio Free Asia, and the other networks around the world, here in Washington and around the world, tirelessly at considerable risk with great journalistic integrity doing what they do every day. We sit here and sometimes wring our hands, we're going to sort this, how is it broken, how are we going to fix it? And then sometimes I worry, David Ensor is nodding, that, that we have colleagues here and out in the field who are saying, we're not broken. <laughs> we're doing fabulous programming and, and television and radio and, and web work every day, and that's also true. All right, I'm going to both call on people and then invite people to join. I am going to call on David Ensor first. Uh, David, you, you have a unique experience as a former director of VOA, as a former senior correspondent for commercial media, CNN, as a private sector guy, as a think tank guy, you've been a vice president of the Atlantic Council. Could, could you tell us um, succinctly, take a couple minutes, but succinctly, what are we doing broadly well and what are we doing less well? Could you give us a little report card? Well, I think you're, you're right in one of your earlier comments that uh, our country has enormous strengths, 
but uh, in this area, but it, it is not taking them seriously enough right now. In the past, we did. During the Cold War, we, we did and had some remarkable successes as a result. But I certainly agree with you on the broadcasting area, and I think of the people, that, the incredible sort of dual national patriots and, and believers in liberty that work at Voice of America. Uh, they are motivated not only by the, by the things that cause them to decide to come to the United States, by, by a, a, a love of liberty and the freedoms that we, the country represents, the opportunity to put your children in the, in the Virginia University system uh, or whatever. But also, they went to work at Radio Free Europe or Voice of America or somewhere like that because they care about the folks back home too and they want these kinds of values to spread. They want freedom to spread. Um, so that's an enormously powerful, enormously powerful formula that's underfunded. Um, in the four years I was director and in the first year of my successor's leadership, the audience of Voice of America has grown by 50% with budget cuts in real terms, in real term dollars, every year. And a lot of it is, some of it is social media and the, the innovations in, in digital media that we see that are opportunities for an enterprising group of journalists and media people, but some of it is just demand. <laughs> people want to, people many want to have more reliable information and they go looking for it. How many languages <clears throat> does VOA broadcast in? Well, when I left it was 45. I think it's up to about 48 now. I'm not sure. It goes up and down. But secondly, I'm, I, as I listen to what you all are saying, I'm thinking of the time when I was a diplomat in Afghanistan. Um, and I'm actually, uh, I'm thinking of the late Ambassador Richard Holbrook who sent me to Afghanistan and said, I'm going to give you the largest public diplomacy budget that any country has ever spent in any other country. Don't screw it up. But, but I'm sending you there, not a professional diplomat, not someone who's running to be ambassador, because I expect you to make mistakes. I expect you to learn by, by trial and error. There's a war zone there. Yeah. We've got to tr throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And we did exactly that to the tune of $185 million over a year and a half. And some of the things we did worked incredibly well. And there were some flops. But he was taking it seriously. Yeah. And I think, as I, as I think back to the time, the year and a half I had in Afghanistan and the public diplomacy efforts we made, if our country could, could take this project a little more seriously and find key areas, you can't do everything, but find key areas where we really want to put resources to bear, we could make a real difference. The, just to mention three examples from Afghanistan, we funded a cop, a cop show. I was talking to Tristram about, about this, a, 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 that became the most popular show on Afghan television. Fiction, a cop show in which the cops were the heroes and tries to solve crime, which for, for Afghans was a novel concept. Most of them were, were accustomed to corrupt cops who never solved anything except their own. Uh, so, and the idea was just to introduce the idea of law enforcement enforcing the law and that the good guys could win. And uh, the excitement that that built among young people, uh, the increase in recruiting for the police departments was palpable. We, we also started the first uh, Afghan social media company called Paywast, which at least when I left was had a larger following and more people using it than 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 Facebook in Afghanistan and we went to the phone companies and said let's do this 
a kind of messaging system, and they said, oh, most Afghans are illiterate, this will never work. They were wrong. It took off like a, like a rocket. And that company, which was started with State Department money, is now private and for profit and doing very well, thank you very much, and it's in about six countries. And the idea was a very simple social media system that you could use on a dumb phone where you could communicate whatever we wanted to, that I have a job I need to fill, or what the price of green melon will be tomorrow morning in Kandahar, that if you want to sell it to me, very simple basic things that would help family businesses in a, in a, in a poor country um, uh, do things. The third example I'll mention is a, play, a program we used to jokingly call Mullahs on Planes. And there we, we, uh, we worked with the, uh, with the Ministry of Religion and Sharia, of, uh, not Sharia, of, of Hajj, and we uh, organized trips for young mullahs and mayors to travel to centers of Islamic learning elsewhere in the world, such as Cairo at the time and uh, in, uh, Jakarta and various other places, centers of moderate Muslim learning, where these mullahs could be reminded that unlike what they'd been brought up to think about under the Taliban, Islam is not a cul-de-sac. It is a great world religion. It is not an extreme little version of intolerant uh, uh, thinking as the Taliban tried to tell everybody it was. And so we, I remember coming at the airport watching these mullahs coming off an airplane from Jakarta with their trinkets and their new clothes and whatever that they'd got on the trip. But the looks on their faces, and they were all going back to places around Afghanistan to talk about things they'd talked about with Islamic scholars in Jakarta that were lighting up their, their idea of what Islam is. And uh, we Americans, all we could do was facilitate that conversation between Muslims. But it was such an important conversation to happen. It was good, strong public diplomacy at work. So there's tons of cool things we can do. But the country needs to take this stuff more seriously. Thank you. And before I invite others to join, I have one question. Why, why is it you mentioned the late Ambassador Holbrook empowering you and suggesting don't be afraid of making mistakes? <clears throat> now, we're in a transactional moment in this world, in this country, and, and budgets are tight. Why is it no one wants to make mistakes, but, but why is it in this kind of work on the ground one needs to empower people and have a culture in which the right sort of mistakes are permitted. Why, why is that? One, one of the problems with government is it's, very, it's dangerous to, to fail, right? And you can't experiment. But, but uh, or it's, there's a high price to, 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 to experimentation. And I think it's... It, it's one of the reasons that the private sector is such an important part of human life, uh, because because it allows you know people will try things. Maybe they'll maybe I'll maybe I'll maybe I'll bust, but I might also boom with this idea, right? So I, I, I think I think we we shouldn't think of this just about as a government conversation about what government can do, but also about what private sector and what partnerships can do and so forth. Um, I put up some towers in, in Afghanistan. It's a long story why. Some of them were wildly successful. One or two were embarrassments, shall we say. They didn't work out. They didn't help. And they cost a lot of money. But I, had, I was in a hurry to do something to make a difference on the ground in a war situation. And I was ready to take the risk. 
if I had been trying to become, you know, charge and then ambassador next, I don't think I would have dared do it. That's very helpful. Okay, we have exactly 32 minutes. We're going to end 1.30 on the dot, Washington, D.C., Eastern Standard Time. I'm going to collect two or three, and if you could do your best to be succinct, it's appreciated, and tell us who you are. Yes, please. Um, the budget process is what does that do in terms of setting the benchmarks for the debate going forward about funding public diplomacy and civil society abroad? <coughs> um, obviously, there are champions like Lindsey Graham and John McCain, as well as some Democrats. But what do you think about the rest of the Republicans on the Hill? Are they going to be influenced by what Trump is asking for? Okay. And um, I heard congressional cordially, and your name was? Rachel Thank you. So hold that. We're going to come right back to that. Who would like to add their voice to the next question or comment? Thank Rachel is right now. Uh, oh, forgive me. Sorry, please. And, uh, and if you could come to a microphone so that folks not present in the room. Right here. Great. Just had it with me. Uh, Carolyn Stewart. I'm the press secretary here at Hudson. Uh, and so my question is, initially you were talking a little bit about state-funded propagandistic media outlets in other countries. So this is a little bit of a shop question. We have a lot of American policy experts um, who have different expertise that they can contribute. Do you recommend that these experts go on some of these outlets? You know, you hear the argument being made both ways that they're an opportunity to, to maybe they're, you know, they're, they're playing their game, but they're getting the right message across. Do you think that that is actually happening in those situations? So just so that I'm crystal clear, should people in this room go on RT? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, I got it. Let's take one more if anybody has one more in this round, not in this round. Uh, Eric, you want to go first this time? Either or both of those? Um, proposed budget cuts question. I, I mean, they strike me as, as uh, very severe. Um, uh, and it may be that the strategy of the administration is to get a debate going about um, you know, where we should be putting limited resources in terms of our stabilization programs, our civil society assistance, and so on and so forth. That's an important debate to be having, um, I think, because there has been a lot of bloat in our contracting um, arrangements. There has been a lot of bloat uh, in terms of creating ineffective bureaucracies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we, the government clearly has a responsibility to American taxpayers. Um, my hope is, is that this new discussion, which is going to take place in Congress, between Congress and the administration, will give rise to the kind of conversation that we're having here today, is what kinds of capabilities should we be investing in? What has worked in the past, and what do we really need in the 21st century to be able to compete? Um, I'm not quite clear yet if we're going to have that conversation or not. In response to your question, um, I think it depends a lot on this. I, it depends on the case. I mean, I've I've known a number of people who've gone on RT and who've had their remarks edited to the point where it's been a complete distortion of what they were saying. Um, I've had I know other people who've 
had more success. You know, it's it really depends on the situation. I think you need to know who you're dealing with, and you need to know uh, have some sense of what control you might have over how your material gets used. And I would be rather distrustful of of the Chinese media and the Russian media in this respect. Um, there's a lot of inducements to go on that, that, that are offered, and a lot of people are made to feel important and, and listened to who otherwise have trouble finding an ear. Uh, there's a, they're very good at inducing people to, 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 to play their game. Personally, I just think it's not a good idea, but people from Hudson, they would probably have to edit a lot of what they say out. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it, it, on the other hand, it's not that, I don't know how much influence RT really has in the United States. Um, I think that RT measures their uh, success by the number of households reached by their signal, which is really, if you know anything about metrics of media impact, that's really not a very um, helpful figure. RT does not tell you what their actual audience is, so nobody really has a sense of it. Um, but, you know, what, what, what can you lose? You know, you might get edited and made to look bad, but maybe it's worth, worth a try. But I think you need to know something, you certainly need to know something about RT before you would go on it. But I think most people at Hudson already know that. Can I just say one thing to, to the question yep. poorly person, which is that, uh, historically, and I think still, uh, there's an element of truth to this, um, the strongest support for Voice of America in Congress has been Republican. So, and it's not just uh, the senators from Arizona and South Carolina. There are some very strong supporters of international broadcasting on the Republican side. I would say something about the politics of uh, poor beleaguered VOA. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people on the right, um, have condemned VOA for some years now for a variety of reasons. Some for some mistakes that VOA made, but also because I think people judge VOA by its English language reporting on the United States, um, which is the only thing that is readily accessible by most Americans. And I have to say, I'm, I myself am a critic of a lot of VOA's English language reporting on the United States. I find it very politically slanted. Um, I find it does not do the kind of political reporting, uh, particularly this last election, that is, that is worthy of the name in many cases. And I know people at VOA who are very concerned about this, but there's so much more to VOA that those people who are doing that kind of bad reporting are doing the whole service of great disservice because VOA reporting in other languages tends to be uh, not, not like that. But a lot of people don't delve into it well enough, and so VOA has gotten a, a bad rap uh, based partly on that and partly on other things. But there's a whole that we we get into the weeds with VOA. We we shouldn't do that right now. Next question or comment. Then I have a question, um, Eric. Uh, we're talking a lot about uh, concept, policies, people, um, organizationally. Uh, once one sorts what needs to be done, this has to work within a bureaucracy. Yeah. And it's been the case thus far that, uh, at least I'll just take the public diplomacy piece, 
that that's been chiefly led since the abolition of USIA 15, 16 years ago uh, by a, a post called the Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy. Is that the right way to do that? Does that need to be reformed? Is it a matter of we just haven't always had the right people there? We've had some talented people there. Once we get the concept right and it's embedded in a clear, coherent, compelling foreign policy, is the organizational setup satisfactory right now or does that need to be uh, adapted or changed in some way? Yeah, I mean, I I don't believe that the organizational setup is correct. Um, I think it needs to be adapted. I think you need an NSC-level position in the government who can act as a quarterback, if you will, on American information operations, and that it shouldn't simply be in, a, in an information operations position, but it should also have uh, executive uh, control and oversight over our stability operations, our civil society assistance, everything that goes hand-in-hand hand with our information uh, work. Um, uh, that's because you can't really approach these struggles from a purely mentalistic sort of perspective. It's not just a question of getting the message out there. It's also a question of building the actual on-the-ground infrastructure where we can actually have ears that can hear the message that we're trying to spread. Um, uh, so with respect then to that, too, it's not just a question of 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 harnessing new technologies. Um, if you accept what I said earlier, that a hybrid offense requires a hybrid defense, we also need, I think, to build up uh, a new cadre within the State Department who can do the kind of expeditionary work that we need to be doing uh, uh, throughout the world um, to operate the way some of the old USIA officers did, uh, but to also work not just in terms of getting message out, but actually building political infrastructure in societies um, to where we can begin not just a messaging campaign, but a political campaign to, to help nourish and build institutions over time that can help solve some of the, some of the security crises that we're facing around the world. But this new expeditionary diplomacy corps, if you will, I think needs to have the, the, the strategic and intellectual autonomy that you had described that you had in Afghanistan. And people need to understand that this is, uh, uh, a, a noble and important profession, um, that it's not going to uh, damage their careers if they if they take this track uh, working at the State Department, um, that this is desperately needed. Um, and I think that making an investment and training up a force of people who are professionally trained to do this is exactly what we need to be doing. Um, do you agree? And, and who are those people? How does one find them, recruit them, train them, and supervise them? Well, I'm not going to answer that question, Jeff. I'm going to say what I want to say. <laughs> and then I'm going to ask you again. You know that. Go ahead. Um, I think, just to hit pause for a minute, I'd like to just very briefly articulate the the sort of the, the mission landscape of what these various pieces and, and parts are before I'm, I don't do bureaucracy, but I think, I think a lot about the various missions or goals of this undertaking. Not all of it takes place in a crisis atmosphere where you're basically trying to build stability, post-conflict stability or stabilization. Not all of it takes place in authoritarian societies. Not all of it takes place in chaotic societies. A lot of it takes place in relatively stable, even democracies uh, or, or struggling democracies, 
where um, you're trying to communicate uh, through um, their media in off in many cases. So it really it the cases vary very much depending on the country and the setting and so forth, which only adds another layer of confusion to the whole thing. I don't blame any of you if you're feeling a little eye glazed by this discussion. But let me just sort of there are there are there are basically I'd say five big chunks here. The first three chunks are very well articulated in the VOA charter. They apply not only to broadcasting, but also, or as they say now, media, because broadcasting sounds too old-fashioned. And it is too old-fashioned for what they do. Three big chunks in the VOA charter. The first is reporting the news. We haven't talked about that very much, but one of the main functions that's, that's carried out by these media, these US-supported media, is local so-called surrogate news which is accurate, reliable, comprehensive local reporting on what's going on in your country, in your region, in your language. And this is a uniquely American undertaking. This is what RFERL does, this is what RFA does, and VOA does it in many places. VOA has always done it. Um, the other part of the news is reporting, you know, world news, news from America. Um, which v, which is, tends to be VOH, VOA's remit. It's very hard to draw this line because they all kind of report all these three different levels of news, local and regional, global news, and news from America. But that is a big part of certainly the media piece. The second mission is telling America's story, to use the corny old phrase. Uh, putting out accurate information about American society, American politics, American institutions, American culture, and in this day and age, I think also to push back against A, hostile propaganda about the nature of American society, and B, our entertainment industry, <laughs> which I would argue sends out an extremely distorted image of our society around the world. And that piece is, of all the pieces, the most neglected, I would say, these days. The third part is the part that Eric and Jeff have been focusing a bit more on, which is the defense of U.S. policy, the explanation of U.S. policy, and the articulation of U.S. basic principles, interests, ideals, and, uh, and uh, intentions of the United States. That's the part that gets called public diplomacy. Those three things are at the core of this, and they exist somewhat in tension with one another, obviously, news and advocating for American policy can exist in tension with one another, as you can readily imagine. Then there's two other pieces. One is, and this is where I would push back a little bit against Eric, information operations. That's a military term. That means, you know, we're coming into your village, uh, this is this is how you need to exit the village. Uh, this is what you need to leave behind you. Or it's oh no, there's only five of us behind that hill. Uh, but actually, there's you know, fifty, you know, five thousand of us behind the hill. Information operations has the aura, whether you call it psyops or strategic communication or information ops. It comes out of the military, and it has the connotation that we will deceive people when it's necessary. And that piece is a necessary part of uh, security, stabilization, and, and military uh, action. But because it has the deception part in it, and the, the readiness and the ability to deceive people, there's always been an impulse to build a big firewall between that 
and the other three things that I was talking about, news telling America's story and defending American policy, areas in which deception and lying do not work very well. You can do it once, but then you've lost your credibility. You can't do it again. In the, in the security realm, you have to sometimes deceive people. So there's always been an effort to keep these separate. I think they're getting, they're getting mushed together now for lots of reasons. And then the last piece is democracy promotion, <clears throat> which is, you know, as we know, fallen on hard times. And when Eric talks about we need to help people sort out their politics and build a good liberal, Republican, Democratic, whatever term you want, uh, an acceptable political order, my heart kind of sinks and I say, well, good luck with that. <laughs> That's almost, you know, in the, in the form that it has taken in the last several years, it's considered to be completely discredited around the world and it's extremely hard to even talk about it in places and it's grist for the mill of authoritarian regimes who are shutting down NGOs, throwing out NED, throwing out anything that looks like democracy promotion. So I, I think that other piece is absolutely essential but it's that's a very, very hard, very, very heavy lift these days. So I'm just sort of laying out that landscape because until we understand what we're trying to do, I don't think it makes much sense to talk about the bureaucratic structure in which we do it. Martha, thank you. Um, I, I want to add as a footnote uh, on democracy promotion, which is out of favor for a variety of reasons and is fallen upon tough times. In, in the work of U.S. international media, at the same time, however, a, a lot of what's done is, in my view, highly intelligent and sophisticated. You know this, but some people maybe here in the room and maybe you know, joining us live streaming don't know that, that when VOA or Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty or others do that kind of work, it's not lecturing about democracy or, or hectoring or sermonizing. I, I know from my experience at RFE when I was there five years ago, uh, the most popular program we had in a radio country like Afghanistan was a call-in show on women's health issues with a gynecologist, a female Afghan. Was that by some narrow definition democracy promotion? You know, was that, you know, fair and free elections and come vote on Tuesday? No, but it was part of civil society and empowerment and health and all that sort of thing. I also remember when I arrived at RFERL, trying to listen and understand how people were making editorial decisions, that there was a service uh, doing a program, how interesting and maybe odd to the ears of a member of Congress, uh, on a Czech homeless theater group. Kind of odd and interesting, and my journalists and editors were quick to understand. You don't understand. We're we're in relating to and broadcasting to audiences that that don't understand this idea of stepping forward, uh, self help, uh, the dignity of every human being, even if they are homeless, and how in a very creative way you can empower people and and give people opportunities. So anyway, I'll stop there. We've got. 15 minutes, a little less than 15 minutes left. Uh, I've seen a couple of you uh, nodding approvingly, shaking your heads disapprovingly. So I am going to pick on you. You first. You were doing neither. You were just, you know, focused and 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 kind of, yeah. Please go ahead. Or turn it, press it on to the green. Yeah. Hi, my name is Deborah Weiss. Can you hear me now? Okay. Um, 
I'm actually a 9-11 survivor from New York and, and an attorney. I do a lot of work on blasphemy laws and hate speech laws and their impact on national security. Um, my question, I have one question and one comment. I was a little afraid to bring it up because I think it's, I don't know if it's a little off topic or controversial, but here we are talking about um, messaging abroad with other countries and from what I can ascertain, and I think Martha alluded to this, is our college students are being fed a steady stream of anti-American sentiment. So I'm wondering if the messaging has to start in the schools, <laughs> because in future generations, uh, there won't be anybody to have a panel like this and discuss what will happen abroad. And the second thing is about VOA. Uh, I'm sure that VOA does quite a lot of good work, and that's great, but I've also heard that some of it, like uh, the cultural part where we're broadcasting Britney Spears in Middle East countries, might not really be to our advantage, and I was wondering if you could comment on that. Thank you. Okay. Well, first could, of all... Could you, hold, could you hold one second? I want to see, is there... Because we've got 10 minutes left. Anybody else want to join this round because time is running fast? <clears throat> Well, there we are. Martha. Um, first, I just, if you'll forgive me for correcting you a little bit, it's not VOA that does the pop music in the Middle East. It's the Middle East Broadcast Network, which is an Arab language uh, television and radio, two services that were started after 9-11, inspired by a, and pushed through by a board member on the BBG who was a commercial radio guy named Norm Pattis. They've been much criticized for doing pop music in the Middle East. Arab and American, Sawa means together. Um, I could go on about that. Um, it, is, it is unfortunate that in the Arab market, which is a transnational market of about 24 different countries, our media presence is probably the weakest as it, than it is anywhere. Um, there is no VOA in the Arab market. There's only these two radio, this radio and this TV channel, and there's a long and sad story about how they have failed to accomplish any really define any of the aims that we would like to see accomplished. They use up a lot of resources, especially the TV. Well-meaning people, but at best it's vanilla, and at worst it's worse than that. So that's that's not VOA. Secondly, before you go on, could, yeah. could you just uh, just one more point or two about music and culture, because, mm -hmm. you know, my beloved RFERL, if you get under the hood, uh, there are editors and producers and programmers that do include music, that do include sports, that do oh, include sure. weather, all sorts of things that people <clears throat> sometimes here might say, well, that's not hard policy stuff. So when is it appropriate and less appropriate to well, it was, integrate those it, things? It was certainly appropriate when Willis Conover uh, on VOA did his famous jazz program in Central Eastern Europe in the Soviet Union, um, which was one of, he was one of the most famous Americans in the entire Soviet bloc. Most Americans don't know his name, but he was, he hosted a marvelous program on American jazz that just went on for years and years and is still famous in that part of the world. It's, it was used well by Radio Farda, the, the Farsi service of RFERL. Um, because they switched from using a formatted kind of music that was basically produced by the by the um, exile Iranian community in LA, they switched over to doing music from within Iran uh, by musicians in Iran who were 
underground, basically defined as not allowed by the regime. And it was extremely popular with young people. It got on social media. And it became a place where young people could talk to each other about a variety of other things. I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of cultural diplomacy. I think it's extremely useful in all sorts of ways and it gets a bad rep. Um, your other comment was, um, <laughs> oh, about higher education, about our education system. Well, I will just repeat what I've said before. I think since the end of the Cold War, we have raised a lot of very smart, very well-educated young people who, for perhaps understandable and defensible reasons whose main criticisms, whose main concerns are with the domestic, our domestic, our domestic prejudices and our domestic injustices. And because they're, they were raised in, in a, in a real American bubble and an American bubble that saw the rest of the world as kind of coming our way in the 90s and, and forward. It's just America's the center of things. Our racism, our sexism, our prejudices, we need to solve those, and having learned how to solve those, we need to tell the rest of the world how to solve their problems along these same lines. You can make a justification for that kind of thing in certain settings, but it is wildly inappropriate in great many countries in the world. And I just think a lot of young people just haven't figured that out yet. Um, they just, they, they, they haven't figured out that when you go to Hong Kong, they have other things on their minds other than you know, the, the threat of, of these kinds of American prejudices. They have other problems in Hong Kong. They have other things that they're worried about right now. <clears throat> it's just a kind of blinkered attitude. Yeah. It doesn't seem to me like they're telling <clears throat> other countries that they should pro solve their problems the way we do. It sounds to me like they're saying, we're the bad guys. Mm -hmm. That's well, what they're learning in a lot of the history classes. Well, except I find that young people who've, 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 who've gone abroad and who, 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 think, who are called upon to defend the United States, tend to, what they defend is, is our success managing our own diversity. And they get a receptive audience for that in a lot of places, um, that we've done well with our diversity compared to how other societies handle their diversity. So you ask a lot of my students what is the most important thing about America, they'll say our diversity. And it's important, but it's not the most important thing, I don't think. But. Yeah. As you know, this, this notion of CVE, countering violent extremism, is one of the things that's deeply contested. And some of the programs surrounding it are on the chopping block with the new administration's proposed budget cuts. And I think that that's short-sighted. Um, in part because you can make a very compelling argument that the societies that have a have had the best success in countering violent extremism at home are societies that are able to work at the K through 12 level, uh, work through religious schools, the Pazantran in Indonesia is a perfect example as well, and work with moms and dads. Um, and it's also clear that our adversaries, as you point out, whether it's ISIS or Putin or, or whomever, um, has a youth-focused strategy. Uh, we need the same. We need the same. Um, I think it would be worthwhile to look uh, and to revamp, say, the Fulbright program. Um, that's a 20th century technology, a 20th century pro program. Uh, it was designed to bring people from the 
closed world or the developing world to come here to the United States. Now, as we look here at American universities, there are people who are who are, have the means to come here, and we don't need that program anymore. What I do think we can do with limited resources is look at ways that we can start to actually build schools and educational networks in other countries. Um, I mean, this would be, I think, a much better use of limited funding. Uh, it might actually be a lot less expensive as well um, than bringing people here. Um, that is to build actual universities. You look at Central Asia, for example, I think the best investment we've made in Central Asia uh, was the American University in Central Asia. Uh, now, after being around for a little over 20 years, um, thanks in part to some support from the U.S. government, but also from from local investors, uh, there's an entire cadre of American-trained people in government and business and in the, pub and in the, in the private sector throughout Central Asia um, that's benefited from that education. Uh, we need to, I think, double down on that kind of, that kind of program. You were reaching to say something? I think the, one of the unique aspects of the Fulbright was that it sent Americans overseas, not just that it brought people here. And I would hate to see that end. I would like to see more Americans sent overseas. I'd like to see them sent overseas with the command of the language. And I'd like to see them sent overseas for more than two weeks or, or half a semester. And I'd like to see them sent overseas uh, and not living in an American bubble where they spend their time partying with their fellow classmates or other Americans or even other, other English-speaking Europeans. Um, if you look at the statistics of American students who go overseas, the overwhelming a number of them go to English-speaking countries, and the overwhelming number of them stay for less than a month, and the overwhelming number of them are within an English-speaking program, even if they're in a, in a foreign setting. They don't bother to, they don't, they're not really learning the language, and it's, it's something of a racket. And I think if Fulbright could push back against that and enable people without means who have trouble, taken the trouble to learn another language, who are interested in a particular region, and support them to actually go there and stay for a while and study, uh, I think that would, I would not want to see that ended. And that was, of course, what it originally was designed to do. It was unique in that respect. It didn't just bring people from the colonies to the mother country, which is, of course, what the Europeans have always done. It was sending us out into the world. And that side of it, I would, I, I think, is extremely valuable, but not done very well these days. Martha, thank you. And to your comments and questions, Deborah, as a former high school teacher, boy, oh boy, you know, bad ideas come from someplace and good ideas come from someplace. And teaching and education and civic education and textbooks, vitally important. And to Martha's point, you know, I don't know of any American experience where we or we send students abroad to learn languages and live in the world outside of us where after experience we say, yeah, it's kind of disappointing. It was a bit of a waste of time. I, I don't think that phrase, I don't think that actually exists. Um, I, I do want to make a, a, a larger point about all this, uh, that we need greater education and media literacy and really consumer literacy about what we're listening to and reading and watching web, 
television and so forth. We started with Tim Snyder and this quote about the truth, and we're losing that rapidly in our midst. I'll close with a a story that was relayed to be by a friend of mine who here in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, was on jury duty not so long ago. And he said during the breaks uh, in the break room on the television was RT all day. And he asked the the people who ran the room and the, the jury coffee break room, why do you have RT on all the time? And this individual said, well, we had Fox on, but the liberals complained. And then we had MSNBC on and all the conservatives complained. So we thought we'd just stick with something neutral and objective. There you are. So to those joined, joining us or having joined us live streaming, thank you very much. To all of you in the roundtable, terrific participation. Thank you. Hudson Institute, thanks for hosting us today. And Eric and Martha, fantastic job. Please stay and chat if we can. If you can, thanks very much. Have a good day.